Thank you, Lynn and Praise Team. If you kind of feel like uh, even if there weren't a sermon, we would have worshipped and we could all go home now. But uh, praise God for his word. We see that it's not Philip's words to the Ethiopian, but God's words were going well beforehand. And uh, that is what really brings the point home here in our, uh, the good news Philip has to share. Our <clears throat> sermon title, A Lone Traveler Finds New Direction. And the first section, put some tact in your contact. Acts 8.35, says in the New Living Translation, puts it, So beginning with the same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. We have good news to share. What a great and awesome God we serve. He's loved us and saved us. That's called evangelism, you angelion, good news. But when it comes right down to it, many of us are nervous and reluctant about sharing our faith. It's been noted that in regard to evangelism, many believers are like the Arctic River, frozen at the mouth. The hardest thing seems to be to open our mouth to get the first word out. How do we broach the subject? Another barrier we can run into is our jargon. It's possible to fail to communicate the good news to non-believers because we use terms they don't use or use in a different way. <clears throat> For example, evangelist. Are you a member of the Christian family? Store clerk. No, they live two miles down the road, the White House on the left. Evangelist. Let me try again. Are you lost? Store clerk. Uh, no, I've lived in this town for over 30 years now. I know right where I am. Evangelist, now getting slightly exasperated. Let me put it this way. Are you ready for the judgment day? Store clerk, when will it be? Evangelist, finally feeling hopeful like he's getting somewhere. What well, could be today, could be tomorrow. Store clerk, well, when you know exactly, be sure to let me know. My wife will probably want to go on both days. It's July now. We're in step two of Ontario's roadmap to reopen, and things are finally starting to open up again. I see step three starts Friday. Yay. People are getting keen to travel. My flight from Calgary to Toronto last Sunday was jam-packed full. After 18 months of shutdown, Porter Airlines announced it will be resuming service to eight Canadian and four U.S. cities this fall, so things are starting to move gradually. People are finally able to access personal care services once more, getting their post-lockdown locks shorn. My wife's salon was humming this past week with customers keen to get their hair done. Speaking of hairdressers, did you hear about the barber who was newly saved and was eager to witness to his experience with Jesus Christ? As he met his first customer the next day, he was sharpening his straight razor on the leather strop. As he stood there, waving the razor back and forth, sharper and sharper, he began his evangelistic approach by inquiring of his customer, are you ready to die? <laughs> Probably some startling thoughts went through the customer's mind viewing the finely honed razor. As has been said, if we don't use tact, we may lose contact. In today's lesson from Acts 8, we find motivation for and an illustration of sensitive evangelism. Philip not only finds a best way to approach his audience, 
he also provides next steps for the Ethiopian man to continue his faith journey fruitfully. Next section, tipping evangelism in our favor. God has laid the groundwork. A bit of context before we begin. Back in Acts 1, after the resurrection, the disciples asked Jesus if now is going to be the time when the kingdom was restored to Israel, 1-6. Jesus' answer blows the concept of territorial political kingdom out of the water and points to a global initiative that's just beginning, Acts 1-8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You get the idea of gospel influence spreading in ever-expanding circles until the whole planet is reached. In the next chapter, Pentecost happens. Jews visiting Jerusalem for an annual harvest festival. Here Peter preached the first post-ascension sermon and thousands soon become Jesus' followers. A new spiritual community starts to form. Miracles happen. Religious leaders express consternation and condemnation with Stephen being the first martyr stoned in Acts 7. A man named Saul, who is entrusted with the coats of those casting the stones, overhears Stephen's speech and begins to ruthlessly hunt down and imprison members of the early church. He doesn't know it yet, but Saul will turn out to be a key agent in bringing the message of Christ before governors and even the emperor in far-off Rome. In response to the persecution, believers flee Jerusalem, taking the gospel with them and continuing to share it with others. Philip preaches in Samaria, some 30 miles north of Jerusalem, and many are converted. Even a powerful sorcerer named Simon believes and is baptized. Church leaders in Jerusalem hear what's happening up there in Samaria and send Peter and John who lay hands on and pray for the new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. It's kind of a a neat touch because once they they were refused in a Samaritan village and asked if they could call down fire from heaven. Different kind of fire this time. The gospel influence is rapidly expanding. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, about 500 miles upstream from the mouth of the Nile River in Egypt is found the northern edge of the kingdom of Ethiopia, also known as Nubia at Aswan. That's the first cataract on the Nile. It extends to Khartoum in the south, with its capital, Meroe, built on a large island in the Nile over 1,000 miles from Jerusalem. Is it possible this could be the next region to hear about Jesus? Well, even though it's the first century, Roman roads have made it possible for people to be on the move. God is about to arrange a divine appointment for Philip that will have long-lasting effects on this distant nation of dark-skinned people. Verses 26 to 27. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, or the Kandaki uh, as the original in the Greek, and it's a, a term from another language. Note Philip made himself available. He'd been preaching up around Samaria, well north of Jerusalem, but now was to relocate quite a bit to the south, 
he was obedient and made the move. Timing was critical. If he delayed a day, maybe even a few hours, he wouldn't have made the appointment. Who does he meet? An important official. In fact, keeper of the purse for an entire nation. In Ethiopia, the king was regarded as a child of the sun god and thus too sacred to be involved in daily affairs. So these were handled by the queen mother, whose title was the Candace or Kandaki or Prince of Servants. This Ethiopian traveling official was a eunuch, emasculated, unable to have children, as was often the custom for officials in ancient times. I guess it made them less of a risk. So the Lord was arranging for Philip to be able to speak into the life of someone high up in government in a foreign land. Let's carry on and read 27b to 29 in chapter 8. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Do you see God's hand at work already preparing for witness? Way before Philip met the man, factors were being brought to bear that could make the official receptive to the gospel. He had traveled by land without a motor vehicle over a thousand miles to Jerusalem in order to worship. Now when he got there, he had come so far but could not go the final few yards. Eunuchs were not viewed as full people and were barred from the temple. For as the law of Moses held in Deuteronomy 23.1, no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. Today, in the era of the internet, information is cheap. In the days of the printing press post-Gutenberg, you still had to pay to buy a book or newspaper. There was a cost. But back in the first century, there were no printing presses, certainly no internet. Books were very expensive, taking the form of scrolls laboriously hand-copied. But the official not only was devout enough to travel all the way to Jerusalem, he invested significant funds to purchase a copy of this scroll, the book of the prophet Isaiah. God was at work. He had the man in the right place. He had prompted the man to buy the scroll and be reading it. The spirit prompted Philip to meet him on the road and then to approach the chariot, probably hitching a ride by hopping up on the running board. Do you pray for your eyes to be open to divine appointments? We never know just how God has been at work in the private lives of people we meet. Sometimes strangers may be more familiar with God's actions in history than we might expect. Last Sunday, I arrived in seat 12E on my Air Canada flight from Calgary to Toronto after considerable uncertainty. The night before, I had gone to check in online only to find I was listed on standby, even though I'd bought my, first, my ticket back on May 27th. After about an hour and 20 minutes on hold on the phone, I sprung the extra $34 for a seat upgrade to the bulkhead about a minute before an agent finally came on the line and assured me I had a seat and refunded the extra cost. However, the boarding pass they printed for me the next day at the airport still said, standby. Staff suggested I speak to the agent at the counter when the gate opened. So I finally arrived at seat 12E on a full flight, thankful I hadn't been left back waiting in the terminal. 
I introduced myself to the passenger on the window side of me. She had spoken to her friend a row behind in a language that was neither English nor French. She explained it was Farsi, and she was originally from Iran. It turns out this Toronto area woman is a professional teacher with a master's degree who's working on a second master's in the field of education. She teaches ESL, English as a Second Language, online to students all over the world, including China. You just never know who you're going to bump into, where they're from, what their qualifications are, what the range of their sphere of impact might be. Philip had his Ethiopian official. I had my Canadian-Iranian ESL teacher. Whom might you be rubbing shoulders with? As we talked, it came out that I was a pastor of a church, which I had to explain what that involved. She commented how the Bible, like the Koran, is important for a full understanding of literature, especially English literature. Later, she disclosed she had, in fact, read four books of the Bible. What four books? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> what a setup. God was already at work in this woman's life, it would seem. I was able to mention about the relationships between the four Gospels and Jesus' life, how Matthew and Luke seemed to add teaching details to Mark's basic outline of the actions of Jesus, and how John took an altogether different approach. That would have been a good point to talk about Jesus' seven I am sayings in the book of John. The Spirit of God is at work in people's lives even before we meet them. There is a human whole. God has hardwired us to hunt for meaning and morality. Ecclesiastes 3.11b He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, that they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. This setting eternity in the hearts of people moves every person to ask questions like, why am I here? What's the purpose of life? What's right and wrong? Where do we go when we die? This is Augustine's, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. There is a famous scientist, Blaise Pascal, whose name is used now for units measuring barometric pressure. Pascal wrote, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. End quote. God's Spirit is at work even before we arrive on the scene. God has also hardwired each person for himself, booby-trapping them with an inbuilt hidden hunger for spiritual truth and reality, for life to have meaning. Once we got into the air and had conversed some, my fellow passenger prepared to watch a movie. She recommended I watch an animated one called Soul. Has anybody watched Soul? Yeah? About a, a, a teacher whose dream is to become a jazz musician. It deals with the meaning and purpose of life, the great beyond and the great before, how people are given their unique spark. Here again, even in the movie choice recommended by my cabin mate, we have modern culture wrestling with the big questions of what's life all about? The existential angst of possibly missing one's calling, what we're built for. 
the good news about Jesus would have lots to say about that. Next section, Jesus' approachability and vulnerability. Now, Philip overhears the Ethiopian official reading from the Hebrew Scriptures a passage from the prophet Isaiah. This would be from the Greek Septuagint, a translation into the commercial international trade language of the day. Philip asks if he understands what he's reading. The man invites Philip to sit with him. The official then asks Philip just who the prophet is talking about. Verses 32 and 33. The eunuch was reading about that was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Bible in basic English translates verse 33, being of low degree, his cause was not given a hearing, Who has knowledge of his family? For his life is cut off from the earth. Do you suppose our eunuch could relate to Jesus being cut off? He couldn't have a family. Jesus was crucified as a single man without a family, but his descendants would be those who are born again into God's family by faith. Could a eunuch relate to this person Isaiah is writing about in terms of humiliation, deprived of justice? Life sometimes just doesn't seem fair. Jesus was a perfectly innocent man, never even committing a single sin, not a political threat, but nevertheless condemned to death by a hastily arranged kangaroo court. But Jesus conducted himself quietly, like a sheep not even bleating when it's about to be shorn. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Children sensed this gentleness. Mothers brought their children to him in order that he might bless them. Jesus, in his humility, is approachable, relatable. He understands what we're going through. When life seems unfair and broken, he gets us and helps us cope and even overcome. As we become disciples who make disciples, we even become regenerative. We can beget a spiritual family, which is exactly what Philip is doing. By being obedient and listening and offering to interpret what the official was reading, Philip was about to beget a spiritual son who lived over a thousand miles away in a foreign country and whose skin color was very different from his own. Note the gospel's great inclusiveness. The Jewish law allowed a eunuch to come so close, but no closer. Christ welcomed even someone whose physical configuration had been permanently damaged. This is a savior for everyone. He relates to our most severe and life-altering human hurts, the abuses we've suffered, all that would tempt us to become bitter and unforgiving. His grace can heal whatever others have done to us and, and give us a fresh start. Next steps, encouraging acts of obedience. Philip must have included in his gospel presentation not just the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but also Jesus' call for people to believe in him as Lord and Savior, signified by the rite of baptism, verses 35-36. And Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. 
Why shouldn't I be baptized? He wouldn't have asked unless Philip had somehow indicated it was a logical next step in the journey of faith. Our gospel presentation must describe more than just spiritual principles that can receive mental assent. As James puts it in 2.19, You believe that there is one God? Good! Even the demons believe that! And shudder. Correct belief follows naturally into godly action. Baptism is an ordinance commanded by our Lord Jesus that is an outward sign of inward grace, a declaration to others that we are now followers of Jesus and belong to him. Baptism is a first step of obedience to Jesus as Lord. His great commandment is not the great suggestion, but requires response if we really acknowledge his authority as Lord. Matthew 28:18-20. And Jesus came to them and said, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Baptism and obeying commands is linked by the therefore to his authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. Verses 38, 39. He gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Incidentally, it seems that baptism by immersion is implied here. They went down into the water and came up out of the water. Ideally, when we're discipling someone, there's an extended opportunity for life-on-life encounters. We can keep meeting with them and sharing more in-depth about the basics of the Christian walk, praying with them, exploring key Bible passages with them, encouraging them in challenges they may be facing in their new life in Christ. In Philip's case, he is snatched away, much the same way Christians are spoken of being snatched away in the rapture when Jesus returns, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. The others in the caravan must have found that startling. Where'd he go? A divine confirmation of the legitimacy of Philip's ambassadorship. The official went on his way rejoicing, so it seems he was already equipped by the Holy Spirit and the Bible, his Isaiah scroll. Christians in Ethiopia today trace their church's history back to this individual. So in that sense, his spiritual descendants became countless. Evangelism doesn't ultimately create lasting dependence, but equips the new believer to continue their faith walk on their own, to stand on their own two feet, praying on their own, studying God's word for themselves, becoming self-feeders. As for my fellow passenger, she made note of the Bible app I recommended, Version, so she could continue reading more of scripture, and she took down the name of our church's website where I encouraged her to tune in and find our weekly sermons and other resources. If you're watching today, great. Hi. I hope she does. We want others with whom we share Jesus' good news to also go on their way rejoicing. Last section, mind your business. 
Evangelist Vance Havner was once preaching at Moody Bible Institute's Founders Week. Havner said, Evangelism is to Christianity what veins are to our bodies. You can cut Christianity anywhere and it'll bleed evangelism. Evangelism is vascular. It's our business. Talk about majoring on evangelism. You might as well talk about a doctor majoring on healing. That's our business. The following's probably a bit bolder than most of us would be, but illustrates Havner's point. Once when walking down a street in Chicago, D.L. Moody found himself next to a man who was a perfect stranger to him. But he asked the man, Sir, are you a Christian? The man retorted, You mind your own business. Whereupon Moody said, This is my business. I like Moody's boldness. However, in our passage, I also like Philip's tact and sensitivity. He starts where the person's at, coming up alongside, listening, offering to assist. The official says, how can I understand unless someone explains it to me? And our SV guides, leads the way. As we come alongside people and really give them our attention, listening carefully to their hurts and hassles, we'll start to see where Jesus could relate to what they're experiencing. Philip began with that very passage of scripture. Start where they're at. What's the God-shaped hole they're trying to fill with something less satisfactory? A Mississippi River boat was passing another vessel. The captain grabbed the first passenger and he saw and said, look, look, over there on the other boat, look at its captain. Passenger was somewhat bewildered and asked, Why do you want me to look at that captain? What makes him so special? Well, then the captain told him the story of how he'd collided one night with another boat. His own vessel was foundering, and in the process, he was thrown overboard. The captain of the other vessel saw his desperate plight and maneuvered close enough that he was able to dive into the water and save his life. After telling this story, the once-saved captain then turned to the bystander and said, Ever since that day, I want to point out my rescuer to others. Likewise, as those who have been saved, secured, and loved by Jesus, we will want to tell others about him. Treasuring him is the best thing in our life. Sharing the good news will become a natural outflow of caring for others and hearing their hurts and hankerings for help. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for arranging that divine appointment for Philip, converting the official, helping him find lasting wholeness and significance, touching a far-off country with your grace by his obedient witness. Lord, make us sensitive to encounters where your spirit is prompting us to share the goodness we've found in you with others who need you so much. We want them, too, to go on their way rejoicing because they found you. Start setting up our appointments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.